Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This week's episode is brought to you by NPR One. From smartphones to smart speakers, NPR One's customizable sponsorship opportunities let your brand's message be heard everywhere. And NPR's audience holds a more positive opinion of brands that sponsor NPR One. Learn more about connecting your brand with NPR One listeners at npr.org slash sponsorship. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, advertising, is in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here. We've also got back uh, Patrick Coffey, a senior editor on the Agency Beat. Patrick, always good to have you here. Thanks, David. And we've got uh, Christina Monlos, a producer on the podcast and senior editor covering the brand marketing beat. Welcome back, Christina. You guys, advertising week is over. I know. It's, oh, a, it's over. I know. It's like, it, how do you guys Sad. feel? Like hungover? Uh, Tim sounds remorseful. Tired. Just tired. We should clarify that we are, of course, talking about advertising week New York, not our own magazine, which continues to chug along. Um, but uh, yeah, advertising week New York was last week. And whew, that was a lot of panels. It was a lot of sessions. Uh, but we will. Uh, I set aside a little time at the end of our news section for us to catch up on what uh, we previewed it in the last episode. But I'm curious to hear like what came up that kind of got some buzz or that uh, got people talking or that we did not expect to be big deals. But first, let's get to the other news. All right, uh, Patrick, you had a lot of good stuff this week. Not to sound surprised, you always have good stuff. Uh, but I did want to talk about a few things. One is that video ads are coming to the subway in New York. Yay. Uh, <laughs> That's right. We had <laughs> yet another distraction on your morning commute. Uh, and uh, yes, I loved our headline about how uh, riding the subway is going to suck even more now, thanks to video <laughs> ads. Um, and, not, and, the headli- not the headline that the PR agency wanted. Probably. No, I can't imagine they were too happy about that. Did you get like a cake or some flowers sent over from them? Like, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the coverage. I got man. a, I got radio silence, which is all I needed to know. It is. You well, got a cake this week, just not from them though. Yes, I got a cake from Wyden and Kennedy, and uh, a cake with a press release on it. Which sadly, you had already, right. we had already written the story before the press release came, which is the best way to do it. But yeah, press release on a cake. 
That was, that was the most fun. tasteful press release I've ever received. <laughs> T- tasty. That was a Marty joke. That was a Marty oh, joke. Yeah, Marty Swant, our our pun master. The uh, um, well, let's talk about that. So uh, I guess I'm surprised. I mean, there are video displays on quite a few subways, um, but as someone who doesn't spend as much time on it as you guys, uh, you know, I've, I've always been a little confused about when there's, when you're going to have the actual, like, video map of, of where you're headed versus just the, the paper map. So uh, these are tens of thousands of new screens that they're installing, Patrick? Yes, that's right. There there have been some uh, moving images on the subway, but there were primarily promotions for, for the MTA itself, which is the organization that uh, manages the subway system. So these are going to be paid ads, and um, it's the the news is that uh, Outfront Media, which is a longtime partner of the MTA, is expanding their platform and allowing for more real time and targeted ad buys by media agencies. So it's going to be paid ads for brands that are going to sort of alternate with the MTA stuff, and then the the subway maps and displays on the um, the station entrances are going to be digital as well. At least uh, it was 50,000 of them across the entire system. So at some point, it will be most of the trains, though one has to wonder when these trains are going to get updated and what they're going to do with them in the meantime. I'm sure it's going to be a progressive thing. I mean, with subway service at a, you know, low... It's at really, a standstill. It's, <laughs> it's really great that... Uh, they're spending money on some screens, so we can. It's just Minority Report, but you'll you'll have IRL. a very captive audience though. If the trains aren't going anywhere, <laughs> they can just sit, you can just sit there and watch ad after ad after ad. This God, is especially this is especially relevant because there's a New Yorkers know there's this ongoing fight between the city and the state as to who is going to fix the long-standing problems in the subway system that have led to terrible service that has gotten progressively worse, especially over the last six months or so. Just this week, the um, head of the MTA, Joe Loda, essentially said that they're going to withhold nearly a billion dollars if the city doesn't agree to pay their share, which is kind of funny because Loda is the guy that Mayor Bill de Blasio destroyed in the last election. So Uh it's... uh, a little bit of um, political back and forth here, and uh, the the victims really are the are the subway riders themselves. Outfront Media is pretty happy though. It sounds like they beat out, yes, big deal for them. Uh, they beat out Google. I think they've been working with the MTA for like eighty years or something. Yeah, and uh, I think about a year ago, the MTA put out an RFP, and uh, I think Google was in, Google pitched the business, uh, or Google backed company p- pitched the business, and uh, Outfront was able to hang on to it probably because they did offer up uh, this whole new digital network. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty interesting for them to, to yeah, keep Yeah, their, their know, stock went account. up accordingly. Uh, it, no. We should, you know, we should explain too for those who don't ride the subway or aren't in New York that, I mean, they, this comes at a time and I think this really drives a lot of the tone uh, of our story and the, and the way people responded to it too is it, you know, it comes at a time of just massive uh, increase in subway usage and also at the same time, massive just mess of of service and outages. Uh, you've got entire lines out of commission. And so it's, on the one hand, great to see New Yorkers really embracing mass transit. But on the other hand, as as Patrick mentions, the political back, you know, backfighting on this uh, has made it a real nightmare. Um, and I mean, just the, even as someone who doesn't live there and who only comes in every few weeks, uh, just the stress level seems to be obscenely high. Am, am I accurate in saying that? Yes, that's true. 
It's a nightmare hellscape every night. Yeah. You never know if you're going to get home within 45 minutes, which is my commute, or an hour and a half, or two hours, you know. And I've if just you're down got, in Bay Ridge, yeah. Yeah, just got my little puppy waiting for me and knowing that. It's also an issue of ad creep, right? You know, like ads on mm-hmm. uh, ads everywhere, like on gas stations, ads. I mean, literally everywhere you go, suddenly, you know, there's this race to do ever more digital, ever more eye-catching ads. And just, you know, at some point there is backlash. Yeah, and you just know that like it, movies are going to embrace this so much where there's going to be, you know, like the broken ad screen that's just glitching and, show, you know, that's going to become like the new the new spray paint. <laughs> it's like, that's how they're going to show like the sad state of affairs. Well, um, Can't I just want to know. for the Black Mirror episode. <laughs> I just want to know if we're going to see new ads for Dr. Zismore, who may be the most <laughs> famous face on the New York City subway line. Yes, the <laughs> eternal He's been advertising face. for decades and he never ages a day. Well, let's let's move on to another uh, great uh, scoop that Patrick got. Uh, WPP, the largest uh, company in advertising, the holding company that owns Ogilvy and all manner of other agencies, uh, they are really putting the screws to uh, the parent company of the Can Lions, which I think is called was it Essential? Is that is that what the parent company is called, Patrick? That's it. And uh, they. You know, just to, to give some background, again, to remind everyone, earlier this year at Cannes, Publicis, uh, the, a different you know, a competitor holding company, announced that they were taking a one-year break from uh, award shows, especially Cannes, uh, which costs a pretty penny for a lot of these companies to invest in and that clients debatably see as valuable. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of us expected after that announcement that the other, you know, the other companies, once they see blood in the water uh, with CAN and knowing how much value, how much more valuable their entrances and entry fees are going to be uh, for CAN now. And CAN probably lost millions of dollars with the publicist pullout. Uh, and so not too surprising to hear. So we intercepted an email, uh, and Patrick, why don't you just give us the context of what that email was? Well, essentially it was it was an ongoing conversation that started when the publicist news broke, or even before, really, because um, Martin Sorrell, the CEO of WPP, who never shies away from a microphone, has made clear in public that he doubts the value of the uh, continuing the investment in CAN, at least at its current scale. And he was very public about the fact that WPP sent half as many people to CAN this year as it did last year, down to 500 from 1,000. And he sort of used the opportunity to both criticize publicists and also say, well, you know what, we might do the very same thing. Yeah, the best of both and he's worlds. he's been right? kind of, yeah, he's been going, you know, he's he's been pretty vocal about it. Um, But I guess what was interesting about this email exchange was just the degree to which the relationship between WPP and Essential is strained at the moment. Um, That they made clear, Essential owns quite a few different uh, organizations beyond CAN, including uh, Eurobest, which is the largest advertising awards festival in Europe. And they also just acquired the consultancy media link. So they're clearly trying to become a larger, more essential player in the ad industry. It's kind of like you can't really help but deal with them if you are an agency or holding group of any size. Um, So the conversation was kind of that they, WPP had agreed some time ago that they were not going to be involved in Eurobest this year. 
but uh, there was some confusion in the communication about that, that there have still been hundreds of agencies and executives in Europe who've been submitting to that festival. And it costs money to submit. It costs money to attend. And uh, this was the global uh, creative director at WPP essentially saying, what's going on here? Everybody needs to pull out now from Eurobest. And then it's revealing that there's going to be a conversation uh, between himself, Sorrell, and the CEO of Essential next month as to the future of the relationship with WPP. And they've already been, it's very conditional. Um, Can has already agreed to reduce the number of categories um, in the next year's event and in the interest of cutting down the price for WPP. So essentially, WPP is kind of bullying the Essential organization into saying, we're going to keep threatening not to do this unless you make it cheaper for us. And it was a little, it's a little embarrassing for both of them. Yeah. It, it on the one hand, um, you know, it makes total sense. WPP and any of these holding companies would be dumb not to take advantage of what a weak position can is in right now with Publis is pulling out basically, you know, there's only what big five holding companies. Uh, and Publis is honestly was probably the smallest of all of them in terms of entries. You know, they've not been a mega player uh, beyond some of their agencies like Leo Burnett, uh, but they've not been super involved in the in the award scene in the last few years. But WPP pulling out, this is Can's holding company of the year for however many of the last you know, years, uh, many. Uh, it's the largest company in advertising. Tim, what do you think is going to come of this? I mean, I feel like the odds of WPP pulling out entirely from something like Can, uh, it seems pretty slim. Uh, but what do, what do you think is going to come of it? You know, uh, the according to the email that uh, that Patrick got, um, it, uh, WPP seemed to actually be pretty optimistic that Can was going to uh, meet its requirements and its uh you know, I, I I would be very surprised. Uh, it sounds like basically the tightening the screws is working, and that Can is already responding to what WPP wants. And uh, you know, it's it wouldn't be in the best interests of of WPP to pull out in many ways either. You know, we saw when when Publicis announced their decision. Uh, you know, all the creatives in their network freaked out, and half you know, a lot of you know, we heard apocryphal stories of, of you know folks who had agreed to join publicist agencies sort of suddenly deciding not to not to go there and you know if WPP did pull out it would be not great for them too so I think that it's in the interest of both parties to come to an agreement here and and you know honestly can Lions is pretty bloated and uh, it would be nice to see them kind of shrink back a little bit now the the thing I would I would throw out too and this is just my personal opinion but I feel like they're real. The, this letter that that Patrick got a hold of, this email, is really hostile, of course, toward Eurobest, which is this uh, European uh, ag- agency uh, award show. And the thing that got me about that is that he's basically saying, "I don't want anyone involved in Eurobest. I don't want any entries in Eurobest. It's just not big of enough of a deal for us to waste money and time on." Uh, the reality is, I mean, I know a lot of uh, winners uh, from Eurobest, and these are countries who otherwise just don't get any time in the limelight. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing for, if you're in Britain or if you're in the U.S., you have lots of options for award shows. If you're talking like Eastern Europe, 
uh, you know, or, or Southern Europe, there just aren't many options for those folks. And Eurobest is the big one. So much like we talked about after Publis has pulled out and we said this is really unfair, especially to the younger talent, uh, it makes sense monetarily. But, you know, for the talent, that's just really disheartening. And I have a feeling like saying no to Eurobest uh, is really just going to put a squeeze on a lot of these, you know, WPP owns YNR, which has a lot of offices in places like Prague. And, so, you know, it's just for, for those nations and, and uh, markets, uh, Eurobest has been a, a good way to get some visibility. So I get it. I certainly don't begrudge anyone having a beef with Can or its parent company, but uh, it's, it's always, you know, sad to think about the talent that's not going to get more visibility because of that. Um, segueing from that to Advertising Week, as we mentioned, was last week. Uh, we certainly all attended quite a few uh, things, moderated some panels. Uh, we, you know, setting aside what we previewed, I'm just curious, uh, Christina, what was, what jumped out at you as being kind of a recurring theme or just a surprise about uh, those sessions you went to this this week or this year? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people are talking about six-second ads. A lot of people are talking about the post-truth world that we're in and what that means for agencies and their relationship with brands and brand messaging out in the world. Um, You know, I think beyond that, um, just talking about weird ways to use mobile for creativity, you know. All the standard stuff, like n- nothing really surprised me like that. There were a bunch of sessions about a post-truth world is like, oh, OK, of course, it's 2017. That is exactly the world that we're in <laughs> and the conversation that we're going to be having. So sure, let's let's talk about that. Um, I don't know. Were you were you surprised by anything, Patrick? I think the the themes that I encountered were, were maybe even less surprising. Um, there was a lot of talk about. Uh, trust between agencies and clients, especially on the media front, after all this kind of all these headlines about Google and Facebook in terms of brand safety and the latest headlines on, you know, um, Russian troll farms buying political ads on Facebook, that sort of thing, and about how the um, this has affected especially media agencies' relationships with their clients, uh, and then there was a lot of talk about diversity as well, and especially in our political era and how the industry has progressed and how they, we still have a long way to go. And of course, there was, there was the usual. On the first day, I essentially went to, to two different panels where the theme was, what is an agency anymore, which is about as evergreen as you can possibly get. Someone uh, responded to, to that article of mine and, and wrote, you know, we've been talking about that since before the internet. So but there's a lot of talk of the consultancies swooping in and taking over uh, agencies' business or buying them up. And um, lots of people have contradictory opinions on that. So we got to hear quite a bit of that as well. Yeah, the existential dread of the agency world is always a fun kind of way to see how that manifests at, the, at these different events each year. I feel like this year it was kind of framed in the questions of uh, does the agency model still make sense, which to your point is a is an argument going back decades. Um, but then also these threats, these direct threats to the traditional agency model, uh, which some are, again, are old, but have popped up a lot more in recent years, which is uh, like clients building their own in-house teams. Uh, and uh, honestly, most agencies seem to kind of shrug that off because they said that they, they tend to quickly learn the limits of how much you, how far you can get with an in-house team. Um, and then consultancies. And I think in the end, who is buying up agencies almost doesn't matter. You know, it's like that's maybe a threat to the holding companies uh, that already exist. But, you know, d- 
consultancies haven't bought them up in such mass yet that that it's going to be that big of a deal. But the thing that really surprised me, I guess, was that to come out of this was how many people seem really bullish and really optimistic about starting a new agency. Uh, I, I sat in on some panels. Uh, Patrick, you may have been at one or two of those as well, where you know, you've got these agencies, some are 10 years old, some are one year old, um, but all of them remain very optimistic that these bloated holding companies, these, uh, you know, that are struggling to, to control their costs while still growing their business, that they have a lot of vulnerabilities. And that if you can start your own gig and fill the gap and fill it in a very lean way, that's not going to cost them a lot of money, that you'll probably do pretty well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this was, it, it's kind of appropriate that that this came on the same the same week that uh, Wyden and Kennedy announced that they would be um, funding their first ever what they call startup agency, which is uh, a group creative director who's been there for a long time. He ran the Old Spice account. He did the um, the Man Your Man Could Could Smell Like campaign. Um, he uh, essentially wanted to break away, launch his own thing, and they said, okay, you can do that, but we're going to be a minority shareholder. And the idea is that eventually the the agency will buy back its shares from Wyden and Kennedy, and they're they're not officially they're operationally independent. So essentially, they can do whatever they want. And the the parent agency said, "You can do this, but on one condition: you can never sell your agency to a holding group or a private equity firm or any other entity like that." So the the idea is that Wyden, which has always sort of defined itself on its independence is going to keep that up, even though this agency does not bear the name and is not really, uh, it's not officially another office. It's just, it's a new agency in Austin that only has like four employees now, but they already have some work. I know that they um, have already produced a music video. So the idea is that they're going to try to do things a little differently. Well, Tim, was there anything, I know you were all over the place this past week. Uh, what really jumped out at you? Well, I went to a few panels, and what, what jumped out at me was how lame panels are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very difficult um, to get you know anything of substance out of these folks a lot of times. Um, and, and in addition to the fact that um, they're just they're discussing stuff that we've covered a lot already. Um, the, what, one thing I was kind of pleasantly surprised by, um, they invited some creatives this year to do what they called creative shorts, which was they said, uh, you know, you have five minutes on stage in between panels and, and do what you want. Like, talk, talk, tell us about your your approach to creativity. And so I saw a handful of these and they were, they were good, you know, because they were sort of produced, well thought out. They were, you know, they were like decks or, or PowerPoints, but but in a, in, a, in a fun sort of creative way. Um, one that I particularly enjoyed was, was by Cash Sri, who's the uh, ECD over at Gyro. Uh, he did a presentation called "Are You an Asshole?" which I enjoyed en- enough to get in touch with him afterwards, and we actually turned it into a, uh, a version of. Uh, we took the presentation and created a story version of it that's now now on Adweek. If you search for "Are You an Asshole?" on Adweek, um, which you know his his point. I don't want to spoil it, but his point was uh, you know creative people are kind of assholes a lot of the time, and uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And he has an interesting take on that. Uh, so that was that was kind of cool. The other thing this week, uh, the, uh, the Advertising Week does partner with the DNAD for the Impact Awards. They were held this week. Uh, the Clio Awards were also held this week. So, and the big winner at both was no surprise, uh, Fearless Girl, which of course over over the summer at Cannes uh, won four Grand Prix there. It actually did one better at Clio's. It won five Grand Clio's. And I think it won two of the uh, – it won a black pencil uh, at the DNAD Impact Awards also. So, 
you know, the industry in some ways may be quite fearful, but they're holding up this fearless girl campaign as sort of the epi- really the epitome. Really, I thought that was okay. good wor- good wordplay. No, thanks. Come on, <laughs> I, I applaud it. Um, the I actually had a, a uh, executive at an agency tell me, uh, you know, it's been a great year for us. I mean, we don't have a fearless girl, but. And I, I was like, how many, how many, <laughs> oh as, we, as we get closer to identifying our, um, our agency of the year, I wonder how many conversations are going to start that way. <laughs> you know, we don't have a fearless girl, but. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the women who, who made fearless girl were on a, a handful of panels this week. Um, one of which, uh, Steph Patrick, our managing editor, uh, moderated, but I was at a different one earlier in the week and they, they openly admitted that other McCann clients are coming to them saying basically like, we want a fearless girl. You know, without any sort of reason why they should or anything, you know, the brands don't really necessarily stand for anything or have anything to sell or position that way. I just thought it was funny that they were sort of, <laughs> you know, the McCann clients are like bleeding for a fearless girl. Yeah, and th- this happens a lot in the agency world where you have something kind of go nuts and your agency gets approached and people say, we want that. And you really have to have a lot of internal and, and debate with that client about how literal are you going to take that question, that 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 request? Um, because, you know, it's like I was, I was in that situation of having, when I worked in an agency, of having something be a huge success and then having new clients say, we want what you did there. And you really have to take a step back and be like, how literal are you saying? Because it's really easy to suddenly become that agency that puts statues in places. <laughs> like, in- well, it's also so depressing that that you would just want to replicate somebody else's idea. Yeah. But, you know. Well, that's the thing. Is like with anything that's successful, people are just like, "Oh, people like that thing, not this cool new creative idea." Which is one of the things I I heard at a panel by Sarah Jessica. Parker of all people where she was talking about and it kind of felt like it was coded language talking about sex in the city and just replicating that but she was just saying you know if you're going to put something out into the world you know you have to have a unique viewpoint you have to have something that's original and something to actually say and so you can't just be like oh a statue (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> works. Let's do that again. Totally, like, because a statue is such a thing too. It's not like yeah, an it's idea. A, it's not like an, no, a, an it's approach. A it's a thing. I don't think anyone else is going to be able to get away with that. Really. Yeah, it's going to look so derivative. And and you know, we yeah. we ran an opinion piece yeah. the other day about AR, uh, which made a really good point that I keep thinking about. As he said, you know, and this is a common sense point, but he said you can be first, or you can be the best and take something to the next level. Like especially when it comes to apps. Um, but he said, you know, it never helps to be the second Pokemon Go. <laughs> I was like, no. yeah, that's a good point. Well, whatever happened to Pokemon Go, by the way? Uh, I, People still use I it. I still play it all the time. Uh, mostly because of my kids. But uh, yeah, no, they've done a good job of rolling out more content for the people who are still into it. I bet their user base is is low uh, and they've actually, their people are saturating. I've had a lot of people tell me lately, like, I've caught them all. <laughs> like I've got, I've got nothing left to do. So I have a feeling they'll be rolling out more uh, pretty soon. All right. Uh, it is time to move on to my favorite part of the show each week, ads worth watching. All right, Tim, uh, what have you got for us? Well, first I want to talk about Audi. Um, you know, this is an advertiser that seems to make a lot of ad news, almost more than any other car maker, you know, particularly with their, their U.S. advertising. Um, you know, they have this great partnership with Venables Bell. I believe they actually had an advertising week panel uh, where they discussed their partnership. In fact, um, they did the 
the dual spot last year that was so great. Um, that was our number two ad of the year. Um, they also um, used Matezik Hoffer quite a bit in the U.S., uh, a smaller agency. Uh, just just last week, actually, um, Matezik Hoffer did this interesting stunt with Audi where they coordinated uh, AMAs with Reddit, uh, with Adam Scott and Elizabeth Banks, uh, the twist being that they answered questions while driving an Audi very fast around a racetrack. Uh, I believe, David, um, you wrote about that one. So mm-hmm. the U.S. advertising is, is strong, but this week I, I wanted to single out um, an Audi UK spot. Uh, it was made by BBH London, and it's a super fun 90-second ad. Uh, it's actually a safety spot, um, but it's pretty fresh and unusual for a safety commercial. Um, I'm sure many of us have, over the years, uh, referred to bad drivers as clowns, people on the road who are you know, dangerously inept at driving. Um, so what Audi did was they, they took this idea of clowns and they made it literal. They have this whole 90-second ad um, where there are actual clowns driving around. And the Audi drivers, who of course have technologically advanced cars, um, managed to avoid all the havoc that these clowns are causing on the road. Um, really fun ad, a lot of great visuals. Um, at one point, there's a clown putting on makeup, um, you know, in the rearview mirror, which you know, of course, is something that real life bad drivers sometimes do. Um, hey, but here it's... that seems gender specific. <laughs> Not necessarily. In fact, I believe it's a male clown uh, doing it in the spot. He's put, but it's, of course, he's putting on clown makeup, so it's he's, he's painting on a giant red smile on his face. Uh, there's a bus driver uh, who gets hit in the face by a pie because all of his passengers are clowns as well, and they're making a ruckus. Uh, it's just really fun. I, the, the idea of, of turning clowns and making it literal is just a really fun idea. And then uh, it's just a, it's a really colorful ad as well. Uh, it's also set to a pretty somber version of the Sondheim song, Send in the Clowns. Um, so that the use of this sort of downbeat soundtrack kind of keeps the ad from becoming a total farce. Um, you know, in keeping with the idea that uh, safety is not really a laughing matter, even though you have clowns kind of demonstrating it. It's also really well shot. Um, probably shouldn't be a surprise because the director was, was uh, Ringan Ledwidge of Rattling Stick, who's one of the great commercial directors working today. Uh, he actually directed uh, Audi Duel last year, so he appears to have taken a shine to Audi uh, or maybe vice versa. So, And the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, it also marks a reunion between uh, him and BBH London. Um, They were the same director agency team that made the Three Little Pigs spot for The Guardian uh, five years ago, which was Adweek's best ad of 2012. So, yeah, I mean, a really fun commercial uh, in a year that actually hasn't seen that many great commercials, to be honest. I was a little sad that they didn't use the Krusty the Clown version of the song, but, you know, the residuals (laughs) on that would be ridiculous. Oh my God! Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. F- it's fun, pretty... fun concept, conceptually fun, and then paid off with a great execution. So that's always a good combination. Well, what else uh, should we be watching this week? Uh, the other campaign I wanted to mention uh, was the Mailchimp work. Uh, Droga Five um, last year, of course, they had the big "Did you mean Mailchimp?" campaign, uh, which won a Cyber Grand Prix at Cannes, pretty well received. Um, so they've they've got a handful of new video ads out. Uh, the theme here is called Get Another Brain. And the idea is that if you're running a small business, uh, you shouldn't have to worry about you know things that could be automated, things like your email marketing, your ad targeting, your e-commerce. Uh, you shouldn't be doing those things by hand. You should get you know you should get Mailchimp to do that for you. And the metaphor here in the new ads is that uh, Mailchimp basically acts like a second brain. So the spots show uh, this actress uh, talking about how great it is to have a second brain. She's in these, 
uh, sort of very stylized rooms. Um, each ad has a different color scheme, so they're very poppy and and quite charming. And she's just uh, the writing's very self-aware and kind of arch. Maybe we, actually we could listen to one now. This will give you an idea uh, of what these ads uh, feel like. If you run an online business, you've got to send emails and do ads and talk to people if you want them to buy your stuff. But that's a lot of people and you only have one brain. Wrong. With MailChimp, you get two brains. A MailChimp brain and the one you already have, probably. When you turn it on, it can do things your other brain doesn't have time to do or can't do or doesn't want to do. Those things are called automations. But I think it's like one big brain. So that's why we're talking about brains. So yeah, I mean, nothing revolutionary here, but it's uh, you know a fun idea, a uh, fun concept to do the second brain thing. And then the spokeswoman, I think, really pays off these ads. Um, it's a London-based actress. Her name's Fliss Russell. And she actually has a background as a children's entertainer. And she does a really nice job here. I mean, the spots really revolve around her and uh, her, her, her monologues are, are really snappy. She's got this sort of Maria Bamford-esque kind of manic, self-aware charisma, um, but it's not over the top. It's just it, it ends up being pretty charming, and the the ads are very memorable. I kind of want to work in the sets that they made for this. You know, they're maybe just for one day though, like not too long. But it's all <laughs> it's this like kind of pleasantly, I don't know, not not neon, this light pastel blue, and everything's got these really uh, just a, a wonderful aesthetic. You know, it's one where the last campaign that you mentioned, the one that had male shrimp and kale limp and jail blimp like they didn't really have a recurring aesthetic you know each one was kind of mm-hmm. very very different um and i actually really liked uh the the male shrimp one the most uh, where the guy's shrimp sandwich is singing to him um, but a lot of it was just the minimalist the wes anderson kind of um uh, of simplistic background and and uh and so this one i found myself really kind of admiring that to the point where i had to go back mm-hmm. and like rewatch it to appreciate the, the monologue but yeah, you know, what what interests me about this campaign is that it's really, really quirky. And quirky advertising like this is almost always uh, business to consumer. It's There's very rare that you get uh, B2B advertising that has a tone like this. You know, Adobe does it a little bit too. I don't know what it is about these marketing automation companies. They seem to really go for the humor and like the, the kind of offbeat uh, approach. Maybe it's just, you know, the fact that Goodby handles Adobe and, and Droga5 handles MailChimp. Um, but you don't expect this kind of playfulness uh, out of B2B advertising. And so I wonder, I do wonder how, uh, I guess, I suppose the, the lesson is that, that small business owners are just like you and me. They're, they're consumers as well and that they're open to anything that's, that's kind of entertaining. And I think when these ads do run, you know, digitally around the web, they, they certainly catch your eye and, and they're sort of a pleasant little break uh, if you happen to be nailed with one for 15 seconds before, you know, before something you want to watch on YouTube. Well, I wanted to throw out one other thing, just uh, something I wrote up kind of late in the week, but that I thought was also a fun piece uh, was the Netflix promotion for Narcos, uh, which uh, we didn't get a big push. Uh, maybe they're going to push it out a little more, but it was a really interesting idea is they basically built a game. Narcos has had a mobile game for over a year, like a, a kind of your typical smartphone game uh, where you build a narcotic empire or whatever it is, and that was part of last season's promotion. But that's like a legit mobile game. The one that they rolled out now, Cartel Simulator, is completely played within Facebook Messenger. Um, and, and so it's the whole thing is basically multiple choice. You know, it, it messages you like, okay, you have $74,000. Here are the drugs you can buy. Here's how much you owe to the cartel. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you want to do with each of these? Uh, it was created by uh, Carrot, uh, which is the agency owned by Vice. 
uh, which, of course, that's a nice fit that Vice would But what really impressed me about it, and unfortunately, Netflix not a very open uh, client when it comes to giving us information and background on some of their campaigns. Uh, so we don't have a whole lot of context of, of the background of what it took to make this happen. Uh, although the app, again, is called uh, Cartel Simulator. If you look it up, you can find a link on, on Adweek. Uh, it's, it's it's quite addictive. <laughs> but the, um, the, the thing that got me was I'm just like, I... I you know, there's so many limitations on what you can say and do on Facebook, especially when it revolves around illegal activity. And they built a whole game about selling cocaine internationally. <laughs> and yes, you, awesome. can, you can be murdered uh, by the, the cartel uh, if you do, if you don't make enough money to pay them back the debts you owe them. So there is certainly, you could say, a moral message. But I did all right. I'll have you know, it's quite a good drug dealer, apparently. Uh, and so, uh, so I only learned positive messages about running my own cartel. Uh, but anyway, just wanted to throw that out. I thought that was really interesting. And I have to admit, it got me, I've been off the Narcos, uh, bandwagon for a while and, and it did leave me being like, eh, okay, maybe I should go back and finish that show. Well, not to be sour about it, but it's like Facebook isn't going to kick Netflix off. Like they're not, they're not going to do that. You know, I'm sure on some level this might violate Facebook's rules, but they're not, they're not going to kick Netflix off. Too many people would be, get upset about it. Whereas, like, I personally, I have a friend who is a, a female artist. She takes pictures of um, Muslim women um, in different states of, like, um, undress sometimes just to show them as, like, as actual real women. And she can't post on Facebook right now. Because because Facebook kicked her off. So it's like, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, of course a brand with money is going to be able to do something cool and interesting on Facebook that like mildly violates Facebook rules. But like artists are not in the same position. Yeah. But that's just me being sour. No, that, I mean, well, Facebook is a platform, but it's mostly an advertising business. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And the uh, exactly. and you're building it on their platform, uh, which, of course, they love to see. Uh, I will say this. Uh, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but I'm pretty sure the game somehow it, it avoids ever saying anything about specific drugs. Like, I don't even think it says the word drugs. It says the words product a lot and things like that. But then when you go to sell or buy drugs, it's like, do you want to buy snow? Do you want to buy powder? Do you want to buy dust? <laughs> like, I'm just like, man, the backflips that they went through, there's some Spanish words in there for, for you know, it's code names. Uh, but all it really is is a supply and demand game. It's like, do you want to, can you can buy this for 500 bucks? And hey, if you fly to London, you can sell it for 2000 Um But yeah, to your, to your point, I think they still had to do a few backflips to comply with these rules. But in the end, it's... It, it's not fool anybody. It's a it's a, a game about buying and selling drugs. And, uh, and have they never watched The Wire? <laughs> WMDs. Oh my god. I I have not watched The Wire. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Come but on, uh, get on that. Well, you know, the deuce has has gotten me back into it. I'm just like I just I was one of those never got into it. But yeah, now will now. All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for rounding those up and for tolerating me throwing one in at the last second there. Uh, but it is time to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right, Christina and Patrick, you had uh, kind of in print uh, two pieces that ran side by side and also are on our website about uh, experiential marketing, uh, activations, and basically how marketers are really uh, becoming more and more in love with the idea of putting together something in the physical world, bringing it to life, creating something people can tactily or physically interact with. Uh, let's take a step back first and just I'm sure you guys had to kind of face the question of how do you define experiential? How do you define activations? You know, how would you guys say that we've kind of defined those, those phrases? 
Well, I mean, I, I think the most obvious recent example would be Fearless Girl itself, which is arguably experiential work. It's a it's a physical object that you can you have to be you can see it. Obviously, lots of people have shared it, have taken pictures of it, made videos of it. But uh, there's something to be said for the desire to be there in proximity to it in order to both sort of, you know, just see it in three dimensions and to take your picture with it and to just uh, it, it is an experience to go down there and and visit the statue. So that's really the principle behind experiential work, that it's something that you have to immerse yourself in rather than just consuming it passively. Yeah. And, and I feel like the real world aspect is what separates it, right? I mean, there's all sorts of experiential things you can put on a VR headset at home or something like that. But we're talking about when they actually bring things to life in the real world, right? Yeah, right. exactly. Right. I mean, I think you have to consider the fact that like everyone is trying to tune out ads you know, we're we're talking about um, ads on the subway and ads being everywhere on every device for people. They they're overwhelmed, and so that can sometimes hurt brands and hurt marketers because people don't want to listen to your messages, and so they're trying to figure out ways to actually deliver something that gives someone a positive experience with a brand, which shouldn't be an aha moment for anyone. Like, if you have a brand, you have to deliver something to someone uh, to make them want to shop your brand, want to be part of your brand, want to, you know, talk about your brand, and so... By, you know, giving someone a unique experience and having um, some sort of social element embedded in that experience, uh, Jaguar, for example, um, had, you know, this this VR thing where, you know, people were able to drive a car and like it would create a movie where it's like you driving uh, you know, high speed chase type thing as, as if it's your own action movie. Not only is that a cool experience for people who would find that to be cool, I am not one of those. Um, but, you know, then you get your own movie of yourself driving and like, you know, you're your own action star. You're going to share that with people if that's a thing that you care about. So, I don't know. You know, it's it's interesting to see the way that different brands are doing this. Some are much more intense than others. I mean, experiential is extremely expensive. Um, and part of the reason that we're seeing more of it now is because, you know, you can prove <laughs> the results with data a lot easier. But another reason is that, you know, people are just inundated with ads at, on on everything that they look at. And so when you put something in the real world and someone can actually engage with it and give a sort of personalized experience, it's more likely that they might walk away with something they, they like. Well, and <laughs> yeah, I think um, one, one key point is that experiential is something that you choose to do, yeah. that you, you choose to visit this um, cool thing or that, you know, you, it, it, it's not something that comes at you and you have to kind of sit through it in order to get back to the program that you like for the most part. Um, one, one, uh, of the agency executives that I spoke to for the story said it used to be, Hey, we're going to do this display in the mall with a Toyota Camry and you can sit behind the wheel of this Toyota Camry and kind of imagine yourself driving it, you know, and it's, 
um, it's evolved a lot since then, but it's really a, the practice is as old in concept as you know advertising itself, I suppose. When you would have like a a, a um, pop up thing with a guy selling his uh, elixirs or whatever, and he could demonstrate the the uh, the effects of them. That, that's I guess that could be called experiential too. But it has moved on, and you know you compare that. Toyota Camry example to the one one that I used in my story, which was when the um, they debuted the Dodge Demon earlier this year at the New York Auto Show, and it was the agency George P. Johnson, and they set out this sort of drag strip going out into the uh, Hudson River in New York on one of the um, the things out there, and they they had the car emerge from this big flaming cage and they had Vin Diesel there and Wiz Khalifa did a DJ set and then you could watch the streaming video at home and they said that they had 55,000 people watching it live so it was a big uh, it becomes less of a product rollout than a multimedia event and then you know the people who were there will share it on social media, and then at the meantime they can they will have people filming every second of it from every possible angle that will later become not just a case study but potentially an ad unto itself, which was another thing that agency people said to me um, that they design these experiences with the idea that they can sort of maximize the budget by breaking it into units of content and distributing them as they see fit afterward. My, my, one of my favorites of this year, I think it was this year, was the Spotted Cheetah, uh, which was the Cheetos uh, restaurant where they had like a, oh, a yes. gourmet pop-up uh, and made made all their dishes from Cheetos. To me, what the reason that one, I, I loved it so much is because if I saw an ad for Cheetos, I would aggressively like look away from it. I, you know, it's like I have zero interest in seeing an ad for Cheetos. If someone stopped me on the street and said, "Hey, do you want a bag of Cheetos?" I'd be like, "No." <laughs> but if you asked me if I wanted to be on the wait list to get into to a gourmet restaurant, and everything's made with Cheetos, I would say, "Hell yes, I do." They had, That's you know. the thing; it has to be a unique experience. Cheetos. But it, it can be as simple as there. There was a project that um, Wyden and Kennedy did recently for Delta where they have a wall in Brooklyn, I think it's in Williamsburg, and they just painted it with like different cities. And I think the idea is that single people go there and they use it as like a dating selfie wall. Yeah, it's that, um, you know, the the people on these dating apps who travel a lot and are, yep. you know, showing that they have interesting lives where they go everywhere and more likely to get dates. So when in fact, they're all still in Bushwick. But yeah. I think that could, it could be argued that, that was, that's experiential work as well. Well, uh, yeah. you know, you guys have covered already several of the big themes uh, that have made this such a hit. I want to talk about a few of those specifically. Uh, one is the, I think the biggest one is the shareability and the way that this is measured, the way success is defined and measured. Uh, we mentioned Fearless Girl. Fearless Girl is one where w- whenever you watch a case study for that, the first data point is is usually PR impressions. And as we've talked about on here, they go very conservative on that. They say like seven million. It's probably it's probably way beyond seven million. But they but then they always say how many photos were posted to Instagram. Uh, you know, of people with it, because to them, that's the success, right? That's and, well, and they have their back end metrics that we talked about recently on here about you know how many people invested, you know, in, in the companies that they were trying to raise awareness of and how many companies said that they're going to start putting more women on their uh, boards and, and leadership. Those are obviously super important. But, you know, again, one of the first metrics you always hear is how many Instagram photos there are of people with uh, with Fearless Girl. So, you know, when you guys were talking to agencies, talking to brands, 
I'm assuming that shareability was really kind of the key factor of anything they do. Well, the, the impression that I got on the agency side is that that's where they start. That's the easiest part. But uh, there's a lot of pressure to move beyond that. There's a lot of pressure to more specifically prove the ROI uh, because, you know, shareability is great. It can talk about exposure, but you really want to say how many sales did this drive? Yeah. And that's what they're getting into now, especially the larger experiential companies are sort of developing their own ways to prove this. Um, there was one, I talked to the independent agency Giant Spoon, which worked on a, an event that was at Comic-Con in San Diego promoting the new Blade Runner movie. And essentially they had a, I think it was like a 15,000 square foot recreation of the Blade Runner universe. And uh, in order to go in there, you had to put on this um, wristband that would kind of track you, and you you gave them your identifying information, your your email address, I'm sure, and they had demographics, and then they could sort of track what you did throughout the event. And it was sponsored by Johnny Walker, so the ultimate metric really was, did you buy a bottle of liquor at the end? And then they would even uh, go back to the old school method, and they would kind of survey people as they exited and say, do you want to see the movie now? Um, which is like pretty basic, but it works. Yeah. A lot of it is about that person to person connection during the event so that they can make sure that they actually made something that will get you to give your email address and your information. And if it's one better than that, get you to be like, oh man, whatever this is, it's so cool. I want it. Can you put me in touch with a sales rep? Which is like, you know, Thinking about an experience in terms of trying to create something that's so cool that someone will be like, oh, hand me over to this person who's going to take money from me, it's, it's not that easy. Well, one thing that surprised me, because I asked pretty much everybody about the whole privacy thing, and it was surprising given all the paranoia about you know um, surveillance and people you know, nefarious parties having your personal information that, that people for the most part willingly give this over. They say, oh yeah, sure, you know, sign me up. Um, and part of it, I guess, is just the interest. They, the agency told me that there were people waiting in line for four hours to go and go through this 15 minute Blade Runner thing. Um, but but part of it is just that, that people are kind of like, if it provides value to me as a consumer, then sure, you can have my email address. You can, you know, monitor my social media activity and so as to better target ads to me. And, and that also happens within the experiences themselves. It's gotten to the point with the better agencies, I think, where they can monitor it in real time. And if they are going to have like individual promotions at certain touch points, they can, um, you know, target them based on not only what you've done since you entered, but what you had done previously and what you things that you like, etc. And even with um, social media, it's gotten to the point where like if they're doing anything with social, you know, um, they're trying to make sure that there's something at the event will, that will get people to use their like specific hashtags. I mean, if you go to things now, often it'll be like, oh, um, you know, if you tag this with this uh, hashtag, it'll print out your Instagram picture for you right here so that you can have a print copy of that, which they know that, you know, everyone at home doesn't really have a printer anymore, but they do like print photos for, you know, their, I guess, 
probably fridge. <laughs> I, I do. I do <laughs> but really it's like, hate that simple. I hate the uh, the mandatory social content uh, experiential stuff, like where it's like, if you do this, it'll unlock this. So you know, post a photo with this hashtag, this brand, and it feels like you, you as a consumer, you're, you're suddenly you go from being a consumer to being a, a commoditized like ad buy. That you know, I am there you know, I'm the one pimping it. And it's like, no, I want to enjoy this. I want to take pictures of it, but I don't want to feel like I'm suddenly your salesperson telling all my friends. You are a salesperson. You're not a person. But you, but at the same time, you have to at least give the impression of offering the consumer something unique. If it's something that you can just sit at home and download or check out on your phone, then, you know, why would they bother? Yeah, what's the point? Now, Tim, you get pitched on experiential case studies all the time. Some of our most read stories are about these. I always get the sense that for every one we write about, there are like 50 that don't succeed. And, you know, I'm sure their agencies can make a case that, that it worked out okay. Um, but, you know, there's a lot, especially in New York, you run into pop-ups all the time or weird little trucks and stuff that brands do, and they just don't blow up. What do you think is like the line between what makes one of these a hit and that really gets your attention versus one that's just like, yeah, okay, that's all right, I guess. Well, I suppose it's just a great creative idea usually is what is what wins out. I mean, we talked about Fearless Girl, you know, that that did win the Grand Clio and Experiential. It's sort of a classic experiential idea. Uh, you know, the, the difficulty with Experiential is, first of all, the scale. And, you know, it's hard to scale. And then second of all, uh, as, we, as we've been talking about, how to sell it. I think the best... Uh, experiential scales itself just through social you look at fearless girl you look at something like uh meet graham which was the transport accident commission victoria's uh sculpture that they made um you know something like boost your voice you know the boost mobile thing where they turned their stores into polling places that was an experiential thing uh wonderful idea that just kind of you know churned up its own PR value. So the reach is one thing. I, I question, you know, marketers who are trying to get too much sales information out of these experiences. Um, we were talking before the show about how Red Bull has done this so well for so long, uh, almost like the original experiential marketer. They don't, you know, they're not looking at uh, how many, exactly how many uh, Red Bulls get sold after a certain thing that they do. They just build a brand around experiences. And I think when you do that and you make the experience authentic and you make the experience fun and, and the experience is the point, not not the sale, uh, I think people can feel that. And, and, and I think the, the, the best ones do it kind of seamlessly and they're not, you know, as you say, they're not uh, asking for something from, from the person having the experience. They're just giving you the experience and it feels, you know, it does. It feels like seamless. It feels like something you'd, you would do on your own if a brand wasn't connected to it. I mean, that's true for like if if agencies have a really cool idea. But honestly, I spent the last couple of weeks talking to brand marketers and it's like, yeah, they want to be able to provide people with something cool, but if they can't prove it, if they can't prove the value of it, they're not going to do it. The pressure is coming from the client side as I see it. And then the real, like the trend that, that we're seeing here, the reason that we really wrote this story in the first place is that you have agencies talking about all these clients moving these this spend that had been on TV, that had been on print media, et cetera, into experiential because they think that it's more valuable, especially when you have, you know, big spenders like P&G saying, alleging that all this money we spend on digital ads, a lot of it's wasted. Whereas with experiential, there's no fraud. 
there's really no like, I mean, I guess with the measurement, you could potentially have fraud, but like, you know that the people were there. At that point, I think you have to make a distinction between experiential and events as well. I think there's a distinction there. You can hold an event, you can sponsor an event, you can have bring people to a thing that you're that you're helping to fund. That's different than an, than an experience, right? Like, like Fearless Girl is not an event. Uh, and I'm sure when you do have like a, an, an event that, that you activate, you probably can get email addresses and you can do those kind of, um, you know, the more measurable stuff. Um, so pure experiential really is about, about you know, giving some, something cool to somebody that they can experience in person and kind of worrying less about, you know, how sellable it is. And I think the more you worry about how sellable it is, the less cool the experience is going to be. Well, I think, I think they bleed into one another though. I mean, a couple of the, several of the agencies I spoke to really sort of started as party planning companies and then they evolved into what we now call, they call themselves lifestyle marketing or experiential marketing. I mean, uh, one of the guys who is a co-founder of an agency in Chicago started in catering and now he does all kinds of different things. I mean, you, it's not really, as deeply as experiential as as say the Blade Runner thing or or some of the other brand stuff that we discuss, but it's still um, it's the kind of it's the physical experience, the immersion. Yeah, to me, it's like it's the difference between an event and a restaurant and a pop up. This is more in the vein of a pop up, right? It's like it's not it's not a one time thing. It's not for like two hours, or you know, it's for a limited amount of time. And I feel like so much that uh, Fearless Girl is the exception in the sense that it's permanent, which it wasn't supposed to be, and it may not be in the long run, uh, but it has a permanence that most of these do not have because they require a certain level of staffing or of, of being open and being available for you to, to walk in and experience. Um, but yeah, and, and it's interesting, Patrick notes, that that the background of these agencies, because we've also seen this where uh, agencies that started as viral marketers, viral video, uh, and may, may, you know maybe they used to make fake stuff, but now they make real stuff. <laughs> well, for example, like one of the agencies I talked to is George P. Johnson, which the name of the agency is George P. Johnson Experiential Marketing, and they're they're one of they've been doing this for for quite a while. And their biggest client is Salesforce, and they do Dreamforce, which is happens every year in San Francisco. It's grown to where it's I think it's there were almost two hundred thousand people there last year, and it's basically a bunch of you know marketing nerds who kind of show up in San Francisco and and. And, um, uh, screw up the traffic and go through all these. They they worship at the at the uh, at the throne of Salesforce, and and they there are little experiential elements within it, but it's really kind of a just a massive event that they plan. So um, before we run out of time, Christina, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned some of the skepticism that brands have about the really wanting to see ROI, really wanting to see returns. Patrick talked about that as well. What else did you hear from brands about kind of their 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 view on where experiential is now and whether it deserves more of their money? Yeah, sure. I mean, brands are really looking for a way to talk to consumers and give them something that isn't just like marketing speak. Uh, you know the this is what you need to buy from us and and more just get people to like their brands. So, you know, if they can offer something that, as we were talking about before, is cool or interesting or different um, and, you know, at the same time, try and get those those th- measurements that they want um, and be able to track all the way through and see if people are going to end up buying a product from them, which is what they're able to do if you give them your information, you know, they're, they're willing to put their, their dollars there. I mean, um, I've 
there was one survey that we reference in in our uh, features where it's um, you know tw- uh, I think a third of CMOs are uh, going to put either uh, between 20 or 50 percent of their budgets towards experiential in the next couple of years. So the money is going there mm-hmm. and there's a reason for it. Well, I, f- I feel like it also highlights too some of this uh, exhaustion with the big numbers of digital. You know, I, I remember 10 years ago, like if you could get a million impressions, multi-millions impressions, it was like, whoa, we're getting so much. We're getting so much value for our ad dollars. And then now I feel like we've kind of all just gotten uh, glazed over by those numbers. And there's a lot of questions about the validity of a lot of those numbers and fraud. And this just almost brings it back. This is like the counter pushes to say, let's get 50 people in the door. Let's get 100, you know, let's start small and and create something really authentic. Uh, We featured one. Uh, that I really enjoyed, uh, which was the world's most remote pop-up shop. And it was for a very obscure brand. It was called 37.5 Technology. Uh, They're basically the company that makes uh, uh, textiles that go into consumer brands, uh, like Carhartt and some of the outdoors brands. But they they made a pop-up shop that was hundreds of feet up the side of a a cliff. Uh, And it was only open for a few days uh, during certain hours. And I think something like uh, 70 people made it up to it. Uh, And so for them, that was the biggest success was that 70 70 people made it. They didn't want 10,000. You know, they wanted 70 because that really sold the message of, you know, that's how extreme you have to be. That's how extreme our customers are. Uh, and so I do feel like this is, as we've discussed a little bit, kind of a pushback to the, the you know, the massive numbers of digital. All right. Well, we are out of time. Thank you both uh, so much uh, to uh, Patrick and Christina for making time for us today. Definitely check out their articles on adweek.com about experiential. There's one uh, from the agency perspective from Patrick, one from the brand perspective from Christina. We uh, we will be back uh, next week with a lot more to talk about. Uh, don't forget, you can drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos, uh, who's also on the panel. So thank you Christina. Uh, Please take a moment to leave a review if you have not already on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us and they help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Griner with Adweek. We will be back next week. This week's episode was brought to you by NPR One, which offers listeners an experience that's personalized and seamless wherever people are listening. To learn how your brand can be part of that experience, visit npr.org slash sponsorship and request a demo. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.